0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership series. My name is Scott Miller, and I'm your ongoing host. Today, we have the insanely smart author of a series of books from the Strategizer series called The Invincible Company. He also is the lead author of a book that most of you know, originally called Business Model Generation, the first in a series of numerous books. Alex Osterwalder, welcome to On Leadership. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Hello, everybody. Hello, everybody. Alex, you're you're, you're rivaling my set with a phenomenal set behind you. Congrats on your mutual love of all things visual. One of the things I love about your books is that you take very complex, heady conversations around business, business models, and you visualize them. So literally anybody of education or experience or sort of natural learning style or modality can, can really appreciate them. For someone who's a rapidly visual learner, I have fallen in, lo- learner. I've fallen in love with your books. What I'd like to do before we start talking about The Invincible Company, Alex, would you spend a few moments and talk a bit about your history and how you came to write these books? You're joining us today from your home in Switzerland with your family, Quarantining Well. Talk a little bit about uh, what brought you here today to On Leadership. <laughs> so,
1: you know, I'm, I'm just fascinated by Business challenges of leaders, and have been working on trying to create better tools um, to visualize business challenges like business models, value propositions, organizational culture, so that business leaders, doers, and innovators can just advance and do better work. Started out 20 years ago when I started working with uh, Yves Pinheur, my longtime co author, good friend. Um, I did a PhD dissertation with him. But then went on, you know, we we created this tool called the Business Small Canvas, became really, really famous, people started using it, millions of people across the world, we were intrigued, obviously surprised by that success, and we went on to create more tools um, for all of the kind of challenges in the innovation space that we've seen, to help companies, you know, continuously reinvent themselves and transform, I just fascinated by how these tools, can uh, help leaders. I I like to call it like an innovation surgeon, you know, surgeons have great tools. I think in business, we need great tools, um, visual tools, like what you see behind me, so we can actually accelerate the the creativity, enhance the creativity and the experience that we bring to the table as business people. So we need tools, just like, uh, you know, surgeons, accountants, etc. So that's what I'm
0: passionate about. Alex, so beautifully said. I, I think the, the strategizer series in general, starting with business model generation, currently capping with the invisible company, is, is a gift to organizations around the world, whether you're a small entrepreneur, you're an upstart, you're a, a founder of a, a fledgling company, whether you're working in a large multinational, regardless, because you've taken these very complex learnings, these case studies these business insights, and you have illustrated them in a way that literally anybody, including me, can digest and understand and do some own work on. I'd like to start our conversation today with how you define the invisible company. I'm going to read the opening from the book. The invisible company is an organization that constantly reinvents itself before it becomes obsolete. The invincible company explores the future while excelling at exploiting the present. Emphasis on exploiting there. It cultivates an innovation and execution culture that lives in harmony under the same roof. And it competes on a superior business models and transcends traditional industry boundaries. How did you come up with the idea to compile all these different business models under the theme of the invincible company?
1: So look, we've been working on the topic of business models now for two decades and we started creating tools and and we've seen, you know, companies are still not really good at this yet. Uh, So we tried to put in, you know, every time we write a new book, first we ask, why does the world need another book? Right. There are so many books out there and it's almost arrogant to say the world needs another business book. So we always, you know, look at the jobs business people are trying to get done, and if they're not getting it done well enough yet, we ask ourselves, what could our contribution be? How could we help them? Because I almost see it like a personal kind of failure if uh, uh, small, big companies around the world don't innovate systematically yet, because that means we didn't give them the right content, the right tools yet. So for this last book, we thought there are two big topics where we can really contribute. One is... How can we help create that innovation mindset that lives in harmony with the execution mindset? That was the first big piece because with all the tools and all the processes, if you don't have those two cultures collaborating, it's not going to work, right? So sometimes innovators like to call themselves pirates or rebels. I don't like that. I think that's nonsense because historically we killed pirates and rebels, so we should see them as contributors and, and, you know, Figure out how, how, how innovators, explorers, and managers who execute and exploit the existing business, how they can collaborate better. That was the first aspect. And the second aspect is that we've seen you know, over the last years, companies still don't use the full potential of business model innovation. So they're very focused on technology innovation on product innovation, on lower prices, new services. And that's great, but it's not enough, because it's actually harder and harder to compete just based on technology and products, because it's so easy, it's getting so easy to copy. So we wanted to put something out there that would inspire entrepreneurs, doers, and leaders to come up with better business models maybe for product and technology innovations, maybe even based on inferior technologies. So we created something that we call the business model pattern library, where we looked at the best cases that we could find around the world, but we didn't say, oh, we're just gonna present cases. We wanted to distill them down to very distinct patterns that can inspire you. So it's like a library, that beautiful library that you have behind you. Imagine if you had this library with wonderful business model patterns where you can look at your own business or your own idea and, and ask yourself, ah, oh, could I apply that pattern? Could that help me you know, lock in customers? Could that help me create recurring revenues? Could that help me scale? So it sounds like this beautiful library where you go in, you navigate, and you try to and apply these patterns to your own business. And some things will, will work, and you can take them from other industries, from other arenas, from other countries, and apply them to your either business idea or to your existing business. And that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to unlock the ability for companies to compete on superior business models, not just on products, uh, technology, services, and price, because the opportunity there is huge. And if you don't do it, I think it's gonna be pretty tricky, because a lot of companies, they focus on efficiency innovation. They make their business models better, which you have to do, that's exploit. It's not that that's wrong, but it's not enough. I like to say often, you know, if you just focus on efficiency innovation, sometimes with very sophisticated technology, your, your business is gonna more efficiently die because your entire arena, your industry is transforming. It's not going to be enough to get better at what you're doing. You need to actually unlearn what you've been doing and start to explore new arenas so you can, you know, um, protect yourself or become resilient for the next five to ten years, not just, you know, the next couple of years. So we created this library to inspire people so they could ask better questions. So we put this questions for leaders to kind of trigger people to either come up with new business models or improve the business models they have.
0: Alex, we're taping this interview in mid-October and I was thinking about you literally just yesterday. I was reading the Wall Street Journal and one of the front page articles was about the business model reinvention of Airbnb. That in the last couple of months, Airbnb was literally going to cease to exist because people were not obviously taking long vacations. But the CEO there and his team saw this need that people in the pandemic were still wanting to have a break from their house. But they were looking at booking homes and villas and apartments within, you know, 100, 200 miles of their home. So they literally reinvented their business model, their website, their computer or their user interface to start featuring homes that were actually proximate to them. And the CEO was quoted in the article as saying, I had no idea that I would need to make 10 years worth of decisions in literally 10 weeks. I've been reading your book for several weeks. And perhaps that's the wrong sentence because... It's not a book you read. It's a book that you dive into, you reference, you digest, you come back to repeatedly. I'm guessing you're pretty familiar with um, Airbnb's business model. For those people who may not be as grounded in the concept of business model, define that and talk about why that's so important.
1: Yeah, so let me actually dive into Airbnb for a second. So I'm going to share my screen here and scribble something so you should be able to see my screen now. So... Every company needs to manage two things, and Airbnb did this extremely well. Let me zoom in a bit. We have the, manage you, the, 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 the part you manage, you exploit, these are the business malls you have. And we uh, describe those with the so-called business mall canvas that looks something like this, nine building blocks that allow you to describe your business mall. So you can Google that, and you'll um, be able to apply it. Very simple, very straightforward. But now what, what happened? When the pandemic hit airbnb's business model you know was completely disrupted and this actually ha- happened to a lot of companies so they couldn't just continue with what they had so they had to let go of 25 percent of their staff and what i think is really impressive is how the management did this in a humane way they explained why they had to do it that airbnb couldn't have survived without doing this and guess what you know probably later they want to hire the same people back So if you don't treat your people well, during a a crisis like this, it's not going to work But now they had to right this is managing what you have they had to make drastic decisions, right? The 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 10 years of decisions in a short period of time, but here's what's impressive with Airbnb They did not kill the exploration during this phase while they probably you know pruned it quite a bit they did still invest in completely new ways of doing things. And that approach is different. Here, when you manage, it's more linear because you know the environment, except when it gets disrupted. When it's about new ideas, you need to experiment, adapt, until you fin- find something that really works. So what's, what's really interesting with Airbnb and companies that work like this is when you have built this ability to explore, alongside your ability to manage and exploit, you will always be ready for disruption because you don't build this muscle overnight. This exploration muscle where you need to explore things in a completely different way requires a different culture, different metrics, but also different skills and experience. So you need to have a organization that is world-class at both and the people on this end are going to be very different than on the people on this end. And what's important, and I think companies like Airbnb have done this really well over the years, is there's no kind of Chinese wall between these. Sometimes people from execution, they go over here when the innovation teams grow. Sometimes people from here, they go back over to execution. But what is important is that you start to manage this new set of professional skills where you have innovators that know how innovation tools work, that know how you measure innovation, that have the experience. They've done it five, 10 times. They've scaled before so they get good at it. You don't become a world-class innovator overnight. So what Airbnb has done is they kept their existing business model alive because they invested still during the pandemic in exploration. And this is the challenge for companies around the world that they don't just stop with investing in the future. And if you look at some of the research, it shows that companies that during a crisis invest in the future, come out of the crisis much stronger. So this is something that takes time to build. You need to build the people you need to build and as leaders, you need to build the ecosystems for the bottom up ideas to emerge. So now is a great time, and surprisingly, a lot of companies that we were, working with, we're working with now, they're investing a lot in these skills and capabilities now. We didn't know this at the beginning, right? Months ago, we thought, well, this is now going to be a break, and all of the customers are going to stop the clients. Turns out it's quite the contrary. This is a moment where a lot of organizations are accelerating their innovation and exploration muscle. Some have to, like Airbnb. But some wouldn't have to. They could go back to you know, a similar business model, if you take pharma, but they're smart enough to build this innovation muscle now. So they use the crisis as an accelerator. So there's some interesting things going on there where I think there are gonna be a lot of companies coming out of this pandemic a lot stronger. Now, unfortunately, there will also be victims because not everybody has the management uh, skills actually to get through a difficult crisis like this. But again, I think it's impressive if you look at Airbnb because they are in the hardest hit industry. And because they had these skills, they were able to get through it. But you don't you don't develop these skills overnight. So a lot of management teams, you know, are going to learn a lot. And unfortunately, not all of the organizations are going to get through this. Um, so that's that's the tragedy of the of this, but there's also a lot of great opportunities. So I, I like to see the opportunities and the people who now I think that there's a separation between world-class management that is using this as an opportunity and not so world-class management is actually, uh, you know, not managing the crisis well and paying the price in many different ways. And unfortunately, employees are paying the price at the same time, which is very tragic.
0: Alex, beautifully said, uh, Airbnb is an excellent model right now of how they disrupted their own model to not just accommodate and survive, but, you know, maybe maybe thrive is the wrong word, but they're going to have a great chance at that. A, A consistent theme in your work, in your writings, in the book is this idea of reinvention, that individuals need to reinvent themselves, organizations have to reinvent. We hear this a lot. And it's kind of like corporate pablum, but it's probably right now the one consistent thing that anybody that comes out of the pandemic stronger is embracing. Will you talk a bit about why reinvention is so important and at a practical level, what does it mean? Yeah, so I'm a
1: bit careful with this in the sense that I don't like saying everybody needs to, right? Everybody needs to reinvent themselves. So remember this exploit, explore, there are things you need to just continue doing well. So actually staying world-class at managing what you have and continuing to be good at it, that's important. And not everybody needs to reinvent themselves. So there are certain aspects of the organization or certain people who need to reinvent themselves. As individuals, okay, it's a slightly different thing. We have to adapt to this new world. But as organizations, I'd be very careful with saying everybody needs to reinvent because as an organization, you need this you have this stable part and you have this part that is going to explore continuously to build the new stable parts of the future now here's the key thing that you need to accept when we're more in exploration is that uncertainty is very high and you don't know what's going to work and you got to live with that it does mean you need to be fearless and experiment a lot, but not naive by making crazy big bets, but by exploring and adapting. And again, that's a hard skill to, kind of, to really master. So the way I like to draw it is, when you go from an idea, you'd like to change something in your life as an individual or in your organization. Let's take the, the business um, idea and innovation. You wanna go from idea to real business. Let's call this a hundred million dollar business could be a 10 million dollar business or a multi-billion dollar business doesn't matter, but when you want to transform and change into something new or invent something new, you need to actually accept that uncertainty and risk is very high if you've never done it if it's really a new idea in that context. You shouldn't make a plan to execute, you know, to really move towards this. That's why business plans are actually the worst tool ever for innovation and entrepreneurship. Because in a business plan, you, might, you, you try to make the future state look perfect, and then you're going to plan how to get there. But the reality is actually very different. You shouldn't build something. You shouldn't build a future. You need to reduce risk and uncertainty the way you do it is – through experimentation and by adapting the idea until you find that ideal state, that transformation that could actually work. So what do I mean? You have an idea, say new value proposition, new business model. You accept that risk and uncertainty is high. Well, you start getting out of the building, to use Steve Blank's word, words, the, the father of modern entrepreneurship education, you start talking to customers, And you try to learn, are they really struggling with these jobs, pains, and gains that you had in mind? They say, no, this is not a problem for me, you just failed. But you failed relatively cheaply, right? And quickly. Well, then you say, okay, now I learned enough about customers. What if I made a spec sheet or a video, let's say a PDF or a video, of how this new service that I have in mind, how it could look like. Doesn't cost me a a lot to make a PDF that visualizes that value proposition or a video. But I still fail. They tell me, this is not going to work for me. This doesn't work in my business context. You failed very cheaply. So you start to scale your experiments with the uncertainty that you reduce. So it's only here that you say, oh, now I'm going to start making this kind of digital application, iPad app, or some big investment good. Because you already reduced uncertainty enough, you can afford to invest more money here into building a prototype. That's the way you explore the future. That's the way you transform without taking crazy risks and making crazy bets. Turns out that entrepreneurs are more risk averse than the general population, but they deal with the risk by making calculated bets and they adapt their idea until they have something that works, until they have a value proposition that, can, uh, that creates customer value and they have a business model that can scale. So that's one aspect. And then when you're in an organization, you also need to invest in several ideas. Let me see if I can find some space here. In innovation, you can't pick the idea that's going to win. Do you know how many, how many projects would you have to invest hundred thousand dollars in a hundred K dollars in order to find a big successful idea? How many how many projects do I need to invest in if I'm a big company like Nestle biggest food company in the world turns out it's 250 to create one outlier one big success and the data we get that from early stage venture capital because it shows from all of these investments that were made only one will be an outlier now in a company how does that work. You invest in this, a company called Bosch, they do this. You invest in 200 projects over three years, but um, after three months, you kill 70% of the projects. Now, that's that's the rough word. You retire 70% of the projects, and you only give follow-up investment to 30%. And what does that mean? Those ideas that showed evidence... From their experiments oh i can show you that customers actually have this problem i can show you how much customers would pay and then you do the same thing again after six months you kill 70 or 75 percent again and you have a couple of ideas going forward so you create this kind of innovation funnel which will allow you to transform by letting the winning idea emerge because here's the big thing in transformation in companies The winning ideas, you don't pick them, you create the conditions for them to emerge. That's a big idea, right? So one is testing, like we've seen here, and the other one is that you invest in a portfolio. And the challenge in most big and small companies is they believe, leadership believes they can pick the winning ideas, because in execution you can. And that is pretty arrogant, I would almost call it delusional, because... Venture capital could not do that since the beginning. They still invest in portfolios. So as managers, as leaders of corporations, small or big, we need to do the same thing. Now, obviously, when you're in a smaller company, you're going to invest maybe in three or five projects because you don't, you don't expect a multi-billion dollar return either, right? So those are a couple of very quick principles. Sketch them out. So maybe it's a bit overwhelming the things I'm throwing at you. But the good news here is that We know these things now, right? These are not unknowns. It is now understood how you can transform an organization. And going back to the individual, it's the same thing. You only transform and grow if you're fearless and experiment. You get out of your comfort zone and then you adapt, right? It doesn't mean you need to take crazy risks, but you adapt and eventually you'll find the right direction. It's the same for organizations and uh, individuals.
0: Alex, I currently have five sections of the book that are being um, tabbed with my fingers because I want to get to these. Before I do that, I'd like to just comment on your artistic talent. I, I don't know whether or not you are wildly artistic or not, but what you have done just in the last couple of minutes is demonstrated a skill that I've always been quite obsessed with, which is a leader's communication ability to visually articulate a vision to actually draw it out on a chart pad, on a whiteboard, on a, a wall, and to, and to allow people at different levels of an organization to assimilate to someone's vision, not just through words or passion or charisma, but to actually see it. Uh, one of our previous guests was a friend of mine, David Sibbett. In many ways, David Sibbett is kind of like the father of, you know, business illustration. He wrote books called, you know, uh, Visual Leadership, Visual Meeting, so on and so forth. How did you come upon this, leverage, this communication skill about the power of visualization? Yeah, I'll try
1: to keep it very short. But David Sibbett was definitely one of the inspirations. I would definitely call him one of the fathers, you know, of of visual facilitation and visual communication, also at the leadership level. He was at the very beginning there. Um, I was particularly inspired also by Dan Rome. So for me, it came during my work when I was still in academia before founding my own company. Um, Bringing a couple of things together. Design thinking, visual thinking, those were all different trends. They were kind of separate and kind of overlapping. And then business small innovation. And when we started working on the tool with Yves Piner, the business small canvas, because it took off, because millions of people used it, we asked, well, why, why did that happen? We were not the first to talk about business smalls. What happened just there? And we did some research and we found out that having this kind of visual, simple, practical, and visual tool like the Business Small Canvas would create a shared language, and that would really, you know, increase the communication, allow people to take ideas out of the head, out of the head, and put it into this visual artefact. Everybody gets more focused, everybody understands what we're talking about, because words are a lot harder to grasp than this visual. So because we saw that, we started to do more and more and more visual thinking. The big breakthrough for me was when I read a book called Brain Rules by John Medina. Yes. And he, he, he says, well, look, people like to say, oh, I'm not a visual thinker, I'm less. We all are. It's, you know, it's genetics in the sense that we had to run away from lions in the savannah, otherwise we would die. So we were very visual thinkers. So while there might be different degrees... You know, at the end of the day, visuals allow us to better understand. So this combination between words and visuals to simplify is incredibly powerful, in particular at the leadership level, because communication is so important. So words are not enough. And that's what I like about Dan Rome's work. His books inspired us at the beginning when we started writing our first books. He liked to call, you know, when you just talk, he likes to call this blah, blah, blah not to make fun of the people who are discussing, but by saying, we have better tools. We can leverage language by using visual tools at the same time. So I think it's a completely underused skill. That allow you to create, yeah. you know, shared understanding and clarity. So it's, it's, again, I get passionate about this. So the answers get a bit longer, but that's
0: kind of the story of it. Alex, I share your passion. I think it's more than underused. I think it's a next generation leadership competency. Is to be able to nurture your visual illustration skills to bring people of enormously varying, increasingly varying backgrounds and paradigms and mindsets and, and educations together. Like right now, I'll never forget the nine steps that you put on the on the board. Right? If you had had you just said it, I probably would have forgotten it. Uh, let, let me segue. Um, the book is organized into a structure that illustrates educates. Dozens of different business models from market explorers to gravity creators, activity differentiators, scalers, margin masters, and on. And each one of these different business models, you illustrate, you explain, and then you share three or four or more sometimes examples of companies that actually disrupted that. Dyson or Apple or Fujifilms or others like that. Would you maybe pick a couple of your favorites, favorite companies that were able to leverage through deep understanding of why that was the right business model for them. Maybe pick two or three of them, and then I'm gonna save and ask you to talk about the genius bar at Apple at the end.
1: Yeah, I'll start with one, not necessarily my favorite, but it's a, it's a good one to illustrate this idea of these business small patterns. If you think of the iPod, remember when Steve Jobs pulled out this device from his pocket and he said, This is the first time we can put thousand songs in a pocket, which was hard to do back then. So everybody saw technology innovation. You know, few people knew this was a business model innovation because once you have this iPod and you put your thousand songs, your entire music library into the iPod, into iTunes. Guess what happens? It's going to be very hard to switch to a different ecosystem because you're not gonna copy all of that music that you copied over months and weeks and so into a new system. So that would lock customers in. We call this gravity creators. They created gravity around a technology product. And because of that, customers get locked in in a positive way to a certain extent, and they would come back and buy iPods again because it's just annoying to switch. And my kind of theory is that that was the foundation of the Apple empire around the iPhone. Because they created switching costs, they were real gravity creators. Now, but what's interesting is this doesn't last forever. Then comes Spotify and takes away the switching costs because you didn't need to put music into a an device anymore. You could just plug in. You pay a subscription. You have access to an enormous library of music, probably you know, all of the most popular music. So these patterns allow you to think, okay, how can I think beyond product and technology and infuse something from a completely different industry? That's why I like the iPod example because, yes, there was technology innovation, but the real breakthrough there was the business model innovation to create gravity around the iPod. That's one example. The other example is more of a shift. You know, take um, this idea of, um, the Nintendo Wii. I love the example of the Nintendo Wii, because they disrupted the game console market with an inferior product, technology-wise. The, the Nintendo Wii, when they launched it, was not as performant processing-wise as the Xbox and the Sony PlayStation 2 at the time. The graphics were not as good. The components were actually off-the-shelf technology while Sony and Microsoft were competing on proprietary technology. So what did they do right? They shifted from high-tech to low-tech because they did something right. They've discovered an underserved market of casual gamers who didn't care about graphics and processing powers. They wanted simple games with the fun motion control of the Nintendo Wii, So you could play tennis like Roger Federer, best tennis player on the planet. Seems like this Spanish guy caught up a little bit, (laughs) but you could be (laughs) Roger Federer on the Nintendo Wii. And here's what happened. Because the consoles were cheaper to produce, they didn't have to live with this subsidy system that Xbox and, and PlayStation had. They were losing money on every device because they subsidized it with $500 while the Nintendo with the Wii was uh, earning money on the games and the devices, right, on the consoles. So think of it, we rarely think inferior technology to innovate and disrupt. That's why we created this library of patterns because we want to inspire people to copy some of these models, these patterns, and bring them into their business, because it's an underexplored potential. So those two are definitely um, some that I like. And sometimes people say, oh, service industry. So we put one um, um, in the hotel industry um, called Citizen M, which is very interesting, because they built a completely new business model in the hotel industry, where they said, we want a you know, accessible product at an affordable price, but that plays more in the luxury and high-end kind of premium market. So what did they do? They transformed the business model. I'll give you two main components. They built a room factory that would build rooms in a highly standardized way. And then they would ship the rooms to a plot in a city and they would put the rooms on each other to build the hotel. So they decreased the construction costs And they decreased the maintenance because it was highly standardized. That was for the billing aspect. Then they said, what about operations? What if we, you know, had service ratings like the Ritz Carlton, but with fewer people? And this is how we're going to do it. We're going to abolish every kind of functional specialization. And the people who work at Citizen M, they're going to be all rounders. And their only task is to make customers happy. So with five people, they can manage 180 rooms doing check-in, doing the espresso at the self-service restaurant, five people and get really high service ratings like a luxury hotel with hundreds of people. Now, obviously the cleaning is not included in that one, right? So empowering people and creating a completely different infrastructure was, was, was what really led them to success and their turnover is very low for employees in an industry that has an extremely high turnover rate. That's how Citizen M revolutionized the service. And we call this the margin masters because they created more value for customers um, at an affordable price and with a much cheaper cost structure. So pretty amazing. You know, it's actually the contrary of what we often say. Oh, you want to create more value? You've got to spend a lot more money. That's the luxury hotel concept. In this case, Citizen M said, More value with less cost, a very contrarian approach, which led to higher margins. We call this the margin master and a business model that values employees in, you know, an industry that traditionally really burns out uh, uh, people. So wonderful examples, and it's not the examples that we emphasize, it's the patterns that we uh, emphasize so you can get inspired by those. So I hope you discover some of those in the future to improve your business models.
0: Alex, the book is kind of overwhelming, and I think that's a compliment because there's so many different aspects of business to learn. First, for the casual reader, just to really understand the different types of business models in which your company could explore or exploit. Second then, these short but just enormously valuable case studies from Dollar Shave Club to Ikea to Tupperware, uh, on and on. I, I, I can't help but ask this, the differentiation with the genius bar at Apple. Will you talk about that briefly? and Then we'll talk about what industries in your mind are left to be um, disrupted. Yeah, so we like contrarian examples, right? So what
1: Apple did with the genius bar is, you know, take an industry that was very low touch, you can almost say no touch, selling um, um, laptops and computers, it was very hard if you weren't a geek, you know, it was very annoying and intimidating to go buy a computer. And that's because everybody was focusing on keeping it extremely low cost. And then comes Apple and says, no, no, we're going we're gonna to actually change this because we're going to offer or we're going to sell high margin products with great design. But we also need to, you know, improve the purchasing aspect, how you actually get these, you know, expensive computers, because great service should come with a great and, you know, great product and beautifully designed. So that's very contrarian. They went into an industry that was no touch, wouldn't even call it low touch, and turned that around with an interesting business model kind of innovation. So that was just an aspect of the business model. So I think this ability to not just look at competitors and copy what everybody does, but ask... What's the right thing to do? What if we did that? Nobody does it because it seems impossible to do. Well, how could we make that happen? And that's, that's what Apple has done a couple of times. And there's, you know, we always refer kind of to Apple. There are many, many companies like that, right? My favorite example at the moment is Ping An, a Chinese, you know, traditionally um, um, banking and insurance conglomerate that turned into a, a technology company. So don't go with the obvious only try to ask yourself, what could really interesting things be? What do customers really want? Oh, it's impossible to do? Well, let's figure out how we can change the business model to do that. So that's why I'm fascinated by these kind of contrarian examples.
0: It had to have been a fun book to write. How, how long did it take you to compile it with your co-authors? How many years did you spend writing this book?
1: I'd say 20 years in the sense <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's the accumulation of, of all of our knowledge, but uh, joke aside, For this particular one, um, I'd say it took us probably two years from the moment we, because we always start with a tool, right? We only write a book when we see there's a tool. This was the portfolio map. We designed that in the mountains with Yves Pinier in the Swiss Alps. That's kind of where we get our inspiration. Then we tested the tool in the world, see if this kind of worked. And then we started writing the book with a team. Uh, We had a whole team of researchers. We had a team of designers. And if you look at the book spreads, right, we write in double pages. There's no overspilling from one page to another. Right. All of these spreads, they probably took anywhere between 5 and 15 iterations. So, you know, with a book um, with over 400 pages, uh, you know, 5 to 15 iterations becomes a pretty tedious task. But that's because we had a great team. And it was amazing because our team was across the world, not always easy to manage when you have... Know, team members in Los Angeles, and then you have team members in Melbourne, it kind of gets dip- difficult. But you know, today, nowadays with you know, remote work and the tools out there, it's a pretty fascinating task. So I'd say two years overall
0: um, um, to kind of get this done. Alex, you're living the dream. Someday I'm gonna be able to say, I get my inspiration from the Swiss Alps. That's kind of annoying, just so you know. Hey, let's finish the conversation, which I think is part of the exciting part of the book. You talk a bit about um, industry disruptors, right? So messaging, WeChat, WhatsApp, automobiles, Tesla, Amazon, Alibaba, I mean retail, Airbnb and hotels, music, Spotify, recruitment, LinkedIn, travel, Expedia. And then you kind of list list out a bit of a challenge, right? These are the industries yet to be disrupted. Banking, pharmaceuticals, legal services, education, manufacturing, healthcare, insurance, real estate, construction energy production and distribution, and transport and delivery. Will you pick maybe one of those or maybe two of those and prognosticate, predict? What's around the corner? Which of those do you think is on the cusp of being disrupted, reinvented because a business model is being established that is a future one, future model?
1: Yeah, I think, um, so I'll pick pharma because um, uh, we've been working with pharmaceutical companies quite a lot. And you know, for, for a certain reason, some of them are portrayed as, as, uh, as villains, but you know, the people I was able to work with are actually, they have one goal. A lot of them are doctors and they want to bring, you know, uh, cures and medicine I to agree. the market. Right. But so I think it's pretty fascinating to see how business malls in that space, you know, business models are changing. The health sector and pharmaceuticals in particular, that's a fascinating space. And I actually think from what we're seeing now with all the pharmaceutical companies we get to work with, there might be some interesting disruptions coming from established players because they're understanding that a couple of things are happening, that their business model, traditional business model of creating a blockbuster uh, uh, drug and then earning money from that over decades, that, that business model is dead, right? It's more and more expensive to come up with blockbuster drugs. Um, so they need to move away from that. But then there's another aspect, and this is, I think, the most fascinating. Think of a one-injection cure. So if you are a pharma company earning money from medicine that you would have to take over decades to stay alive, and all of a sudden you invent a one-injection cure, you have to reinvent the business model because no government in the world is going to allow you to ask you know, for a $10, $10 million injection for once, so you're actually going to kill your business model if you bring that drug to the market. So there's an ethical challenge there where you really have to think that we want to bring that drug to the market, so we have to come up with a new business model, and they want to, right? The the doctors and researchers in that space, they want to, but they have to come up with a different business model so they don't commit innovation suicide. The equivalent happened in the innovation suicide happened to Kodak. Kodak was a very, very innovative company. They came up with the digital camera. They invented it. The problem is, there was technology innovation, and you could call it innovation suicide because selling a lot of digital cameras meant there was no more money to be made from analog film, and, and Kodak's business model was based on analog film. That was innovation suicide. So it's very similar today if you look at some of the things happening in the pharmaceutical industry. That they have to come up with a new business model to bring those cures to the market. So besides the ethical challenges, this is really fascinating, and I think you know the other fascinating aspect is we can have a very positive impact on society if we come up with, with new business models in the health sector in general. That is a big space that is uh, ripe for disruption and it's starting now. And what's exciting to see is that there are actors from the startups to the established players that are moving. And one last aspect maybe is we kind of vilify always the large organizations and we glorify the startups. I wouldn't be so black and white because we've seen a couple of startups in the past, you know, think Theranos or there's, there's, There's not just good stuff going on in the startup world. I believe that some established players with the assets they have, not just money, but brand, customers, intellectual property, if they really start to learn how to innovate on a large scale, they can create a lot of value for society. Because I believe the best companies, and that's what, you know, we aspire to push companies in that direction, they create value in four ways. They create value for customers and their business, that's basics, otherwise you don't survive but they also create value for their team members, for their associates across the world because otherwise you can't retain talent. And then the fourth one, they create value for society. So take Unilever, Paul Polman, you know, turned Unilever into a company that tried to harmonize profit and sustainability. And he was arguing that they could grow more and he had a pretty good track record, you know, with the sustainable living concept where Unilever focused on, we're not, we don't want to destroy the planet to grow, we want to grow and work on sustainability, sustainability in harmony. So we're going to see more and more of that. So I think there's a lot of value creation for society that will happen from large companies, not just startups. So I think that's an exciting thing that's happening and uh, I'm, that's, that what's, that's what motivates me to help uh, large companies to innovate. More money is, you know, that's just how you keep track of uh, success. The real you know, goal should be creating value for customers, the organization, the associates, and, the, and society.
0: Alex, our listeners and viewers could join you for hours and our time is ending. But on that point, I wanna further one more question. One of the most fascinating parts of the book was this concept where how B2B companies, you know, you kind of traditionally hear, you're either B2B or you're B2C. And a concept that you talk about is that increasingly you've got these B2B companies that are moving B2B to C, meaning they're not trying to cut out the middleman. They're just these institutional brands, these manufacturing brands that are becoming increasingly insightful on how to make sure that the end customer knows about them and sometimes even go direct. What, what would you share about the future of this kind of new model B2B to C? Yeah,
1: I found it fascinating, you know, to... To read up and study Intel inside, you know how they became a visible brand because they used to be just a chip manufacturer behind the scenes, right. and the same for you know W. L. Gore. It's also a fascinating organization from many points of view. You know they make they're in the fabrics business and they're best known for Gore Tex. You know they're famous kind of consumer fabrics. They were a fabrics company behind the scenes. And then they, they, you know, they figured out a way to become visible to the consumer with their guarantee on fabrics, on clothes, and on shoes. So everybody now knows Gore-Tex, though they're not a consumer brand in the traditional way, because the consumer brand is the shoes and the jackets and the gloves, you know, they're in. But they figured out a way to do that. And again, it's contrarian, right, where they tried to figure out, well, how could we? become a mass market brand? How could we create value for our customers, which are the you know, uh, manufacturers of shoes, of clothes, of gloves? And they, 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 they did that business model innovation that at the end of the day served their clients and served the consumers because there was a guarantee that came with that. So I love those companies that don't stay you know, in their box, but that ask themselves, well, how could we explore and, and figure out new things? And here's where I want to take the pressure away from all the listeners. It's not about the creative idea. It's not about creative genius. You figure out these ideas through constant exploration. Many of these ideas will fail and it's okay. Some of these ideas will be ahead of their time and it's okay. But eventually you'll hit the right idea because you explore all the time. So the challenge is to explore cheaply. You know, you don't don't go bankrupt in the process. And that's what all these innovators do well. They constantly explore. They're always curious. They have this curiosity, but they also have a process in place and the right skills in place to do this well. So I'd wanna take away this fear that, oh, innovation is for the creative genius. Innovation, you know, is about the great idea. No, it's not. It is actually about process and tools then, of course, like with tennis and Roger Federer, some people will be better at it. Some people be, will be worse. But you won't really get good at it if you don't use these tools and processes. So I would encourage everybody, you know, if you're, if you're interested in these topics, go out and try. It's all about getting out and trying and learning these tools. It's like education in medicine, right? You, you can't just read books to become a doctor, but you can't just kind of practice and trial and error either. You need to read the books. So it's both. It's theory and practice. It's this ability to learn anatomy and physiology and be an intern who practices, right? It's the same thing for me in business, leadership, but also in particular in innovation, which is a more, you know, a newer domain. We need to master this profession. These skills can be taught and that will allow even those who are good to get better. Last thing maybe, you know, I ask people who are successful in business, that why do you like our tools? You already had success. And they say, well, you know, I could have done it a lot faster and with a lot less pain if I had known about these tools and these processes before. (laughs) So it's not like we're doing something completely new, but we're doing it better, okay, and with less suffering because we now know how it works. So I encourage everybody to get started, try it out. Um, It's not rocket science, but it does take, you know, years to really master this stuff.
0: Alex Ulsterwalder, your your work is absolutely genius. Uh, I purchased four copies of the book, two for the set and one each for our CEO and for our president. I highly recommend everybody pick up a copy of The Invincible Company. And Alex, you can send my royalty check here to headquarters in Utah when this airs. Excellent work. Love to have you back on for the next book. Thank you for joining us today from Switzerland. Be safe with your family. It was awesome. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks everybody, hope you enjoyed this. If you listen to it on audio on a podcast platform, you might wanna dip in to the actual uh, visual uh, uh, interview because Alex on several occasions took out his actually whiteboard and actually screened out some of the visuals that further reinforce how important this leadership competency is. Not just to be able to reduce your thoughts to writing, but to take that writing and visualize it in some kind of art form that allows people to get a shared vision around what your business model and strategy looks like. Hope you found today's interview enjoyable. If you're not subscribing to On Leadership, now the world's largest subscribed to and distributed weekly leadership podcast, please do so by visiting franklincovey.com. Click on the On Leadership tab, subscribe your friends, your family, your colleagues, and we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership.